31. The right banks rise into bluffs, while the opposite shores are low and flat. The Volga is a fine example of this, all the way from Devir to Astrakhan, and the same feature is observable in most of the Siberian streams that reach the Arctic Ocean. Various conjectures account for it, but none are satisfactory to scientific men. Steamboats have ascended to Omsk, but there is not sufficient traffic to make regular navigation profitable. We crossed the Irtysh 270 versts south of Tobolsk, a city familiar to American readers from its connection with the story of Elizabeth. The great road formerly passed through Tobolsk, and was changed when a survey of the country showed that 200 versts might be saved. Formerly all exiles to Siberia were first sent to that city, where a commission of transportation held constant session. From Tobolsk the prisoners were told off to the different governments, provinces, districts, and circles, and assigned to the penalties prescribed by their sentences. Many prominent exiles have lived in the northern part of the government of Tobolsk, especially at Borisov on the river Obi. Menshikov, a favorite of Peter the Great, died there in exile, and so did the Prince Dolgorithi and the Count Osterman. It is said the body of Menshikov was buried in the frozen earth at Borisov, and found perfectly preserved a hundred years after its interment. In that region the ground never thaws more than a foot or two from the surface, below to an unknown depth it is hardened by perpetual frost. Many Poles have been involuntary residents of this region, and contributed to the development of its few resources. North of Tobolsk, the Ostiaks are the principal aboriginals, and frequently wander as far south as Omsk. Before the Russian occupation of Siberia the natives carried on a trade with the Tartars of Central Asia and the abundance and cheapness of their furs made them attractive customers. Marco Polo mentions a people, in the dark regions of the north, who employ dogs to draw their sledges, and trade with the merchants from Bokhara. There is little doubt he referred to the Ostiaks and Samoyeds. A Polish lady exiled to Borisov in 1839, described in her journal her sensation at seeing a herd of tame bears driven through the streets to the marketplace, just as cattle were driven elsewhere. She records that while descending the Irtysh she had the misfortune to fall overboard. The soldier escorting her was in great alarm, at the accident, and fairly wept for joy when she was rescued. He explained through his tears that her death would have been a serious calamity to him. I shall be severely punished, he said, if any harm befalls you. And, for my sake, I hope you won't try to drown yourself, but will keep alive and well till I get rid of you. Tobolsk is on the site of the Tartar settlement of Cyber, from which the name of Siberia is derived. In the days of Genghis Khan Northern Asia was overrun and wrested from its aboriginal inhabitants. Tartar supremacy was undisputed until near the close of the 16th century, when the Tartars lost Kazan and everything else west of the Urals. During the reign of Ivan the Cruel, a difficulty arose between the Tsar and some of the Don Cossacks, and, as the Tsar did not choose to emigrate, the Cossacks left their country for their country's good. Headed by one Yermak, they retired to the vicinity of the Ural Mountains, where they started a marauding business with limited liability and restricted capital. Crossing the Urals, Yermak subjugated the country west of the Irtysh and founded a fortress on the site of Cyber. He overpowered all the Tartars in his vicinity, and received a pardon for himself and men in return for his conquest. The Tsar, as a mark of special fondness, sent Yermak a suit of armor from his own wardrobe. Yermak went one day to dine with some Tartar chiefs, and was arrayed for the first time in his new store clothes. 
One tradition says he was treacherously killed by the Tartars on this occasion, and thrown in the river. Another story says he fell in by accident, and the weight of his armor drowned him. A monument at Tobolsk commemorates his deeds. No leader rose to fill Yermak's place, and the Russians became divided into several independent bands. They had the good sense not to quarrel, and remained firm in the pursuit of conquest. They pushed eastward from the Irtysh and founded Tomsk in 1604. Ten years later the Tartars united and attempted to expel the Russians. They surrounded Tomsk and besieged it for a long time. Russia was then distracted by civil commotions and the war with the Poles, and could not assist the Cossacks. The latter held out with great bravery, and at length gained a decisive victory. From that time the Tartars made no serious and organized resistance. Subsequent expeditions for Siberian conquest generally originated at Tomsk. Cossacks pushed to the north, south, and east, forming settlements in the valley of the Yenisei and among the Yakuts of the Lena. In 1639 they reached the shores of the Okhotsk Sea, and took possession of all eastern Siberia to the Aldan Mountains. I believe history has no parallel to some features of this conquest. A robber chieftain with a few hundred followers, himself and his men under ban, and, literally, the first exiles to Siberia passes from Europe to Asia. In seventy years these Cossacks and their descendants, with little aid from others, conquered a region containing nearly five million square miles, everywhere displaying a spirit of adventure and determined bravery. They reduced the Tartars to the most perfect submission. The cost of their expeditions was entirely borne by individuals who sought remuneration in the lucrative trade they opened. The captured territory became Russian, though the government had neither paid for nor controlled the conquest. I saw the portrait and bust of Yermak, but no one could assure me of their fidelity. The face was thoroughly Russian, and the lines of character were such as one might expect from the history of the man. He was represented in the suit of armor he wore at his death. Chapter XLVII the evening after we passed the Irtysh, a severe biran arose. As the night advanced the wind increased. The road was filled and apparently obliterated. The Yamshiks found it difficult to keep the track, and frequently descended to look for it. Each interval of search was a little longer than the preceding one, so that we passed considerable time in impatient waiting. About midnight we reached a station, where we were urged to rest until morning, the people declaring it unsafe to proceed. A slight lull in the storm decided us and the Yanchiks to go forward, but as we set out from the station it seemed like driving into the spray at the foot of Niagara, midway between the station. We wandered from the route and appeared hopelessly lost, with the prospect of waiting until morning. Just before nightfall, we saw three wolves on the step, pointing their sharp noses in our direction, and apparently estimating how many dinners our horses would make. Whether they took the mammoth into account I cannot say but presume he was not considered. Wolves are numerous in all Siberia, and are not admired by the Baikat inhabitants. When our road seemed utterly lost, and our chances good for a bivouac in the steppe, we heard a dismal howl in a momentary lull of the wind. Folk, wolf, said the Yamshik, who was clearing away the snow near the sleigh. Again we heard the sound, and saw the horses lift their ears uneasily. An instant later the fury of the wind returned. The snow whirled in dense clouds, and the roaring of the tempest drowned all other sounds. Had there been fifty howling wolves, within a hundred yards of us, we could have known nothing until they burst upon us through the curtain of drifting snow. It was a time of suspense. I prepared to throw off my outer garments in case we were attacked, 
and roused the doctor, who had been some time asleep. At the cry of, Wolf, he was very soon awake, though he did not lose that calm serenity that always distinguished him. The Yamshiks continued their search for the road, one of them keeping near the sleigh and the other walking in circles in the vicinity. Our position was not enviable. To be served up au natural to the looping race was never my ambition, and I would have given a small sum, in cash or approved paper, for a sudden transportation to the Astor House. But with my weight and substance, all the more desirable to the wolves, a change of base was not practicable. Our only firearms were a shotgun and a pistol, the latter unserviceable, and packed in the doctor's valise. Of course the wolves would first eat the horses, and reserve us for dessert. We should have felt, during the preliminaries, much like those unhappy persons, in the French Revolution, who were at last in a batch of victims to the guillotine. After a long delay the road was discovered, and as the wolves did not come we proceeded. We listened anxiously for the renewal of their howling, but our ears did not catch the unwelcome sound. The doctor exhibited no alarm, as he was an old traveler. I concluded to follow his example, and go to sleep. In ordinary seasons wolves are not dangerous to men, though they commit more or less havoc among livestock. Sheep and pigs are their favorite prey, as they are easily captured, and do not resist. Horses and cattle are overpowered by wolves acting in packs, the hungry brutes displaying considerable strategy. A gentleman told me he once watched a dozen wolves attacking a powerful bull. Some worried him in front and secured his attention while others attempted to cut his hamstrings. The effort was repeated several times, the wolves relieving each other in exposed positions. At length the bull was crippled and the first part of the struggle gained. The wolves began to lick their chops in anticipation of a meal, and continued to worry their expected prey up to the pitch of exhaustion. The gentleman shot two of them and drove the others into the forest. He could do no more than put the bull out of his misery. On departing he looked back and saw the wolves returning to their now ready feast. The best parts of Russia for wolf hunting are in the western governments, where there is less game and more population than in Siberia. It is in these regions that travelers are sometimes pursued by wolves, but such incidents are not frequent. It is only in the severest winters, when driven to desperation by hunger, that the wolves dare to attack men. The horses are the real objects of their pursuit, but when once a party is overtaken the wolves make no nice distinctions and horses and men are alike devoured. Apropos of hunting I heard a story of a thrilling character. It had been, said the gentleman who narrated the incident, a severe winter in Vitebsk and Vilna. I had spent several weeks at the country residence of a friend in Vitebsk, and we heard, during the latter part of my stay, rumors of the unusual ferocity of the wolves. One day Kinchin, my host, proposed a wolf hunt. We shall have capital sport, said he for the winter has made the wolves hungry, and they will be on the alert when they hear our decoy. We prepared a sledge, one of the common kind, made of stout withes, woven like basket work, and firmly fastened to the frame and runners. It was wide enough for both of us and the same height all around so that we could shoot in any direction except straight forward. We took a few furs to keep us warm, and each had a short gun of large bore, capable of carrying a heavy load of buckshot. Rifles are not desirable weapons where one cannot take accurate aim. As a precaution we stowed two extra guns in the bottom of the sledge. The driver, Ivan, on learning the business before him, was evidently reluctant to go. But as a Russian servant has no choice beyond obeying his master, the man offered no objection. 
three spirited horses were attached, and I heard Kinchin order that every part of the harness should be in the best condition. We had a pig confined in a strong cage of ropes and withes, that he might last longer than if dragged by the legs. A rope ten feet long was attached to the cage and ready to be tied to the sledge. We kept the pig in furs at the bottom of the sledge, and drove silently into the forest. The last order given by Kinchin was to open the gates of the courtyard and hang a bright lantern in front. I asked the reason of this, and he replied with a smile, If we should be going at full speed on our return, I don't wish to stop till we reach the middle of the yard. As by mutual consent neither uttered a word as we drove along, we carried no bells, and there was no creaking of any part of the sledge. Ivan did not speak but held his reins taut and allowed the horses to take their own pace. In his secure and warm covering the pig was evidently asleep. The moon and stars were perfectly unclouded, and there was no motion of anything in the forest. The road was excellent, but we did not meet or pass a single traveler. I do not believe I ever felt silence more forcibly than then. The forest in that region is not dense, and on either side of the road there is a space of a hundred yards or more entirely open. The snow lay crisp and sparkling, and as the country was but slightly undulating we could frequently see long distances. The apparent movement of the trees as we drove past them caused me to fancy the woods reeled with inanimate forms to whom the breeze gave voices that mocked us. About eight bursts from the house we reached a crossroad that led deeper into the forest. Naprava, in a low voice from my companion turned us to the right into the road. Eight or ten bursts further Kinchin, in the same low tone, commanded Stoy. Without a word Ivan drew harder upon his reins, and we came to a halt. At a gesture from my friend the team was turned about. Kinchin stepped carefully from the sledge and asked me to hand him the rope attached to the cage. He tied this to the rear crossbar and removing his cloak told me to do the same, getting our guns, ammunition, and ourselves in readiness, and taking our seats with our backs toward the driver, we threw out the pig and his cage and ordered Ivan to proceed, the first cry from the pig awoke an answering howl in a dozen directions, the horses sprang as if struck with a heavy hand, and I felt my blood chill at the dismal sound, the driver with great difficulty kept his team from breaking into a gallop, five minutes later, a wolf came galloping from the forest on the left side where I Saturday, don't fire till he is quite near, said Kinchin. We shall have no occasion to make long shots. The wolf was distinctly visible on the clean snow, and I allowed him to approach within twenty yards. I fired, and he fell. As I turned to reload Kinchin raised his gun to shoot a wolf approaching the right of the sledge. His shot was successful, the wolf falling dead upon the snow. I reloaded very quickly and when I looked up there were three wolves running toward me, while as many more were visible on Kinchin's side. My companion raised his eyes when his gun was ready and gave a start that thrilled me with horror. Ivan was immovable in his place, and holding with all his might upon the reins. Poshal! shouted Kinchin. The howling grew more terrific. Whatever way we looked we could see the wolves emerging from the forest, with their long gallop, which can tire. The hounds deep hate. The hunters fire not only behind and on either side but away to the front, I could see their dark forms, we fired and loaded and fired again, every shot telling but not availing to stop the pursuit, the driver did not need Kinchin's shout of Poshal, and the horses exerted every nerve without being urged, but with all our speed we could not outstrip the wolves that grew every moment more numerous, if we could only keep up our pace we might escape, but should a horse stumble, the harness give way, or the sledge overturn, 
we were hopelessly lost. We threw away our furs and cloaks keeping only our arms and ammunition. The wolves hardly paused over these things but steadily adhered to the pursuit. Suddenly I thought of a new danger that menaced us. I grasped Kenshin's arm and asked how we could turn the corner into the main road. Should we attempt it at full speed the sledge would be overturned. If we slackened our pace the wolves would be upon us. I felt my friend trembling in my grasp but his voice was firm. When I say the word, he replied, giving me his hunting knife. Lean over and cut the rope of the decoy. That will detain them a short time. Soon as you have done so lie down on the left side of the sledge and cling to the cords across the bottom. Then turning to Ivan he ordered him to slacken speed a little, but only a little, at the corner, and keep the horses from running to either side as he turned. This done Kinchin climbed to the left side of the sledge prepared to step upon its fender and counteract, if possible, our centrifugal force. We approached the main road, and just as I discovered the open space at the crossing Kinchin shouted, Strike! I whipped off the rope in an instant and we left our decoy behind us. The wolves stopped gathered densely about the prize, and began quarreling over it, only if you remain to tear the cage asunder, the rest, after a brief halt, continued the pursuit, but the little time they lost was of precious value to us, we approached the dreaded turning, Kinching placed his feet upon the fender and fastened his hands into the network of the sledge, I lay down in the place assigned me, and never did drowning man cling to a rope more firmly than I clung to the bottom of our vehicle, as we swept around the corner the sledge was whirled in air, turned upon its side and only saved from complete oversetting by the positions of Kenshin and myself. Just as the sledge righted, and ran upon both runners, I heard a piercing cry. Ivan, occupied with his horses, was not able to cling like ourselves. He fell from his seat, and hardly struck the snow before the wolves were upon him. That one shriek that filled my ears was all he could utter. The reins were trailing but fortunately where they were not likely to be entangled, the horses needed no driver, all the whips in the world could not increase their speed, two of our guns were lost as we turned from the by road, but the two that lay under me in the sledge were providentially saved, we fired as fast as possible into the dark mass that filled the road not twenty yards behind us, every shot told but the pursuit did not lag, today I shudder as I think of that surging mass of grey forms with eyes glistening like fireballs, and the serrated jaws that opened as if certain of a feast. A stern chase is proverbially a long one. If no accident happened to sledge or horses we felt certain that the wolves which followed could not overtake us. As we approached home our horses gave signs of lagging, and the pursuing wolves came nearer. One huge beast sprang at the sledge and actually fastened his forepaws upon it. I struck him over the head with my gun and he released his hold. A moment later I heard the barking of our dogs at the house and as the gleam of the lantern caught my eye I fell unconscious to the bottom of the sledge. I woke an hour later and saw Kenshin pacing the floor in silence. Repeatedly I spoke to him but he answered only in monosyllables. The next day, a party of peasants went to look for the remains of poor Ivan. A few shreds of clothing, and the cross he wore about his neck, were all the vestiges that could be found. For three weeks I lay ill with a fever and returned to St. Petersburg immediately on my recovery. Kenshin has lived in seclusion ever since, and both of us were grey-haired within six months. Before the construction of the railway between Moscow and Nine Novgorod there were forest guards at regular intervals to protect the road from bears and wolves. The men lived in huts placed upon scaffoldings 15 or 20 feet high. 
This arrangement served a double purpose, the guards could see farther than on the ground and they were safe from nocturnal attacks of their four-footed enemies. One evening at a dinner party, I heard several anecdotes about wolves, of which I preserve two. I was once, said a gentleman, pursued by ten or twelve wolves, one horse fell and we had just time to cut the traces of the other, overturn our sleigh and get under as in a cage, before the wolves overtook us. We thought the free horse would run to the village and the people would come to rescue us. What was our surprise to see him charge upon the wolves, kill two with his hoofs and drive away the rest. When the other horse recovered we harnessed our team and drove home. And I, said another, was once attacked when on foot. I wore a new police of sheepskin and a pair of reindeer skin boots. Wolves are fond of deer and sheep, and they eat skin and all when they have a chance. The brutes stripped off my police and boots without harming my skin. Just as I was preparing to give them my woolen trousers, some peasants came to my relief. Although I feared my auditors would be incredulous, I told the story of David Crockett when treed by a hundred or more prairie wolves. I shot away all my ammunition, and threw away my gun and knife among them. But it was no use. Finally, I thought I would try the effect of music and began to sing Old Hundred. Before I finished the first verse every wolf put his forepaws to his ears and galloped off. My story did not produce the same results upon my audience, but almost as marked a one, for all appreciated its humor, and before I had fairly finished a burst of laughter resounded through the room, and it was unanimously voted that Americans could excel in all things, not excepting wolf stories. Chapter XLVII The many vehicles in motion made a good road twelve hours after the storm ceased. The thermometer fell quite low, and the sharp frost hardened the track and enabled the horses to run rapidly. I found the temperature varying from 25 degrees to 40 degrees below zero at different exposures. This was cold enough, in fact, too cold for comfort, and we were obliged to put on all our furs. When fully wrapped I could have filled the eye of any matchmaking parent in Christendom, so far as quantity is concerned. The doctor walked as if the icy and inhospitable north had been his dwelling place for a dozen generations, and promised to continue so a few hundred years longer. We were about as agile as a pair of prize hogs, or the fat boy in the side show of a circus. My beard was the greatest annoyance that showed itself to my face, and I regretted keeping it in cut. It was in the way in a great many ways. When it was outside my coat I wanted it in and when it was inside it would not stay there. It froze to my collar and seemed studying the doctrine of affinity. A sudden motion in such case would pull my chin painfully and tear away a few hairs. It was neither long nor heavy, but could hold a surprising quantity of snow and ice. It would freeze into a solid mass, and when thawing required much attention, the Russian officers shave the chin habitually, and wear their hair pretty short when traveling. I made a resolution to carry my beard in violet to St. Petersburg but frequently wished I had been less rash. A mustache makes a very good portable thermometer for low temperatures. After a little practice one can estimate within a few degrees any stage of cold below zero. Fahrenheit. A mustache will frost itself from the breath and stiffen slowly at zero, but it does not become solid. It needs no waxing to enable it to hold its own when the scale descends to 10 degrees or thereabouts, and when one experiences 15 degrees and so on downward. He will feel as if wearing an icicle on his upper lip. The estimate of the cold is to be based on the time required for a thorough hardening of this labial ornament. And of course the rule is not available if the face is kept covered. 
There is a traveler's story that a freezing nose in a Russian city is seized upon and rubbed by the bystanders without explanation. In a winter's residence and travel in Russia I never witnessed that interesting incident, and am inclined to skepticism regarding it. The thermometer showed 53 degrees while I was in St. Petersburg, and hovered near that figure for several days. Though I constantly hoped to see somebody's nose rubbed I was doomed to disappointment. I did observe several noses that might have been subjected to friction, but it is quite probable the operation would have enraged the rugby. During our coldest nights on the steppe we had the unclouded heavens in all their beauty. The stars shone in scintillating magnificence, and seemed nearer the earth than I ever saw them before. In the north was a brilliant aurora flashing in long beams of electric light, and forming a fiery arch above the fields of ice and snow. Oh, the splendor of those winter nights in the north. It cannot be forgotten, and it cannot be described. Twilight is long in a Siberian winter, both at the commencement and the close of day. Morning is the best time to view it. A faint glimmer appears in the corridor where the sun is to rise, but increases so slowly that one often doubts that he has really seen it. The gleam of light grows broader, the heavens above it become purple, then scarlet, then golden, and gradually change to the whiteness of silver. When the sun peers above the horizon the whole scene becomes dazzlingly brilliant from the reflection of his rays on the snow. In the coldest mornings there is sometimes a cloud or fog bank resting near the earth, from the congelation and falling of all watery particles in the atmosphere. When the sun strikes this cloud and one looks through it the air seems filled with millions of microscopic gems, throwing off many combinations of prismatic colors, and agitated and mingled by some unseen force. Gradually the cloud melts away as it receives the direct rays of light and heat. The intense cold upon the road affects horses by coating them, with white frost. Their perspiration congeals and covers them as one may see the grass covered in a November morning. Nature has dressed these horses warmly, and very often their hair may justly be called fur. They do not appear to suffer from the cold, they are never blanketed, and their stables are little better than open sheds. One of their annoyances is the congelation of their breath, and in the coldest weather the Yenshiks are frequently obliged to break away the icicles that form around their horses' mouths. I have seen a horse reach the end of a course with his nose encircled in a row of icy spikes, resembling the decoration sometimes attached to a weaning calf. In a clear morning or evening of the coldest days the smoke from the chimneys in the villages rises very slowly, gaining a certain height. It spreads out as if unable to ascend farther. It is always light in color and density, and when touched by the sun's rays appears faintly crimson or gilded. Once when we reached a small hill dominating a village, I could see the cloud of smoke below me agitated like the ground swell of the ocean. I had only a moment to look upon it ere we descended to the level of the street. I have not recorded the incidents of each day on the step in chronological order, on account of their similarity and monotony. Just one week after our departure from Barneal we observed that the houses were constructed of pine instead of birch, and the country began to change in character. At a station where a fiery-tempered woman required us to pay in advance for our horses, we were only twenty versts from Tuman. It is but a step from the sublime to the ridiculous, and it is only a step a thousand miles wide between Tomsk and Tuman. Travelers from Irkutsk to St. Petersburg consider their journey pretty nearly accomplished on getting thus far along. The Siberians make light of distances that would frighten many Americans. From Tuman you will have only 1600 versts to the end of the railway, said a gentleman to me one day. 
A lady at Krasnoyarsk said I ought to wait until spring and visit her gold mines. I asked their locality, and received the reply. Close by here, only 400 versts away. You can go almost there in a carriage, and will have only 120 versts on horseback. The best portion of Tuman is on a bluff 80 or 100 feet above the river Tura. The lower town spreads over a wide meadow, and its numerous windmills at once reminded me of Stockton, California. We happened to arrive on market day, when the peasants from the surrounding country were gathered in all their glory for purposes of traffic. How such a lot of merchandise of nearly every kind under the Siberian sun could find either buyer or seller, it is difficult to imagine. The marketplace was densely thronged, but there seemed to be very little traffic in progress. The population of Tuman is about 20,000, and said to be rapidly increasing. The town is prosperous, as its many new and well-built houses bear witness. It has shorn Tobolsk of nearly all her commerce, and left her to mourn her former greatness. It is about 300 versts from the ridge of the Urals, and at the head of navigation on the Tura, half a dozen steamers were frozen in and awaited the return of spring, their machinery being stored to prevent its rusting. In the public square of Tuman there was a fountain, the first I saw in Siberia. Men, women, boys, and girls were filling buckets and barrels, which they dragged away on sleds. When we returned from our drive, and were seated at dinner, the cook brought a quantity of Tuman carpets for sale. He used all his eloquence upon me, but in vain. These carpets were made by hand in the villages around Tuman, their material being goat's hair. From their appearance I judged that a coarse cloth was looped full of thread, which was afterward cut to a plush surface. Some of the figures were quite pretty. These carpets can be found in nearly every peasant house in western Siberia, where they are used as bed and table coverings, floor mats, and carriage robes. From Tuman to Nine Novgorod the post is in the hands of a company, and one can buy a ticket for any distance he chooses. We bought to E.K. Reinberg. 306 versts, paying 9 kopecks a verst for each vehicle. At the stations it is only necessary to show the ticket, which will bring horses without delay. The company has a splendid monopoly, protected by an imperial order forbidding competition. The peasants would gladly take travelers at lower rates if the practice were permitted. The only thing they can do is to charter their horses to the company at about one-third the ticket prices. Alexander would make many friends among the people by curtailing the monopoly. From the Torah the country became undulating as we approached the Urals. But W.